The sermon text this morning will be Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You know, when, you, when you look at lists of what causes people their greatest fear, uh, there are all kinds of lists, and uh, they have all kinds of stuff on them, spiders and snakes, flying, dying, and the like. But uh, one that consistently appears on all these lists of what causes uh, Americans most fear, it is public speaking. And... Uh, I get it. I really do get it. I mean, it was uh, the first time I was in uh, preaching class at seminary. Uh, We had to preach. You can only take a a Bible into the pulpit. And we had a very well-known preaching professor. And um, he was very serious about his art. And um, we would have to preach before our peers. And he would be in the back room, in a sound room, as it's being recorded. And he would voice over observations good and bad over your preaching but then he would come out afterwards and he had this slow walk to him it was like this and he had his head down and in my mind I could imagine like a sickle in his hand and and he'd be coming out because he'd then come out and turn around and ask the people and say so what was Tom's main point and he would start then just asking these questions where you felt like you were getting just shorter and shorter and by the end you're thinking 
I've got to go into plumbing or electricity or something. I cannot be a preacher. And uh, that, was, that was the first sermon, and it was, uh, I still remember it with crystal clarity. Well, this is Peter's first sermon, and uh, I don't know if he was scared, but uh, I know he did better than I did, at least. Uh, but, but this really wasn't his sermon verbatim. Um, at least we don't think so. We, we think that the sermon itself was probably longer. This is only three and a half minutes if you read it start to finish. And I know that no one here would like a, just a three-minute sermon. So it's probably a bit longer. And you see in verse 40 anyways that there are probably more words that he used, encouragement that he gave, he exhorted them, gave witness. Uh, it's kind of a summary though. Uh, but, but it's a summary. It's a sermon that really sparked the church and, and got it moving in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And, and what Peter actually is, he's really a test case for what we've been doing in this series so far. Now think about it, at the beginning of this series, we looked in Acts chapter 1 about what does it mean to be, to be called to be a, a witness. Remember, a witness is one who testifies to the truth of God, that Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. So that's the call of the Christian to be a witness. But then Jesus said, don't go anywhere until you receive power from the Spirit. And that's what we saw then the following week, that God's Spirit comes upon us so as to be a witness. So you see Peter here, he was called to be a witness, he was given the Spirit, and now he's doing the works of ministry. Just He's kind of setting out a path for us to follow. And that's what we're going to look at today. Just two things I want you to think about. Uh, one is the messenger. We'll look at Peter for a moment. And we're actually going to look at Peter in the verses prior to the ones that were read. Who was Peter as a messenger? And then what was his message? Because that's really the bulk of the sermon. The message of the witness, or the message of the messenger. Uh, so, so first, the messenger himself. Now, we didn't read in verses 14 through 21, uh, but let me just tell you what happened. Peter stands up. And he begins to speak. Now remember the event in the first half of chapter 2. Uh, there was the sound of wind. There were the tongues of fire. There were the various languages being spoken. That gathers a crowd. A crowd was gathered. And he stood up and said, and do you remember what they were thinking? The scuttlebutt, um, uh, the scuttlebutt among the group was, they got to be drunk. I mean, they got to be kind of tipsy, they're talking in these different languages. And so Peter, the first thing he gets up is he says, hey, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. I, I think probably a, a bit of humor that he was using. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter stands up and he says, you missed it. You missed it. These various languages that were being spoken is evidence <clears throat> that the promise of God in Joel Hundreds of years before, they waited for this promise that God would give the Spirit upon all people, not just the select few, as in the past that he would give the Spirit upon all people has in fact occurred. And you heard it yourself. You heard that God said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and now you hear it going forth in this world. So he's saying, you missed it. A new day has dawned. This is what we talked about last week. The Spirit of God has now come. Like the rainstorm we had when you got up this morning, you just heard the heavens, or at least over on my side of Raleigh, it just opened up and it was pouring, drenching the earth. The Spirit came down and it's going to now fill men and women, young and old, those of high economic station, those of low economic station. 
He's going to fill us. It's a new day. In fact, you know what Peter refers to him? He says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. In other words, Peter is saying, not at the very, 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 very end of the last days. You know, I don't, when you see the last days in Scripture, I don't want you thinking, oh, those few weeks before Jesus Christ returns. No, the last days in Scripture is a time frame. It's a time frame from his first coming and ascension and exaltation to his second coming. We're in the last days. And we're now called to do that ministry. And that's what Peter understands. He's the messenger. I'm living in the last days. I've got a message. We have God's spirit. Let's go do the work of ministry. So, so for you, let me just take a step back from the text and speak to you for just a minute. To be a messenger means you recognize the times that we're in. You recognize that Babel is being pushed back. The, the confusion of the languages is being pushed back, and now there's going to be a unity in the language of the gospel. Uh, that he's now, this is the time that you and I, we live between these comings. You really are getting your spot on the redemptive map of God. That God is putting us on the redemptive map. Here's where you are. This is your time. Make the best use of it. You and I are called to be witnesses, recognizing that time is, is passing quickly. As you get older, time passes even faster. I know the clock doesn't spin any faster. It just feels faster, and there seems to be a greater urgency in us as we get older. I, I want to I encourage those who are not so old to recognize that it will pass quickly for you, even though it doesn't seem so. But I want you as messengers, if you're a Christian here, you want to see yourself, I'm a messenger, I'm a witness. I have this unique time given to me, and this time is to be utilized for God. This is what Paul's praying for, actually, when he writes to the church at Colossae. He says these words. He says, at the same time, would you pray for us that God may open a door for the word, that's what I'm praying for right now, to declare the mystery of Christ. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Do you think about time in the context of stewardship? Do you, do you think about that? Do you just think you got 78 years or whatever the average lifespan is now? Do you just say, oh, I'll get time to it. I've got time. I'll, I'll get to it. I mean, there is a stewardship principle that's to be used for time. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, he's saying making the best use of your time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul's saying, be mindful. The conversations that you have are not by chance. God is providentially bringing conversations up for you to express the things that are closest to your heart, the things of God, to those. That's what you are, you're a messenger. If you're a messenger, you recognize the time, but you also recognize the indispensability of the role you play. Let me say that again. As messengers, you are indispensable to God. Are you saying God couldn't do it this way? I'd say, no, he can't. He's chosen you to be his voice. There's no other way. Could he blast out from the heavens? I guess he could. But he's told us that we're the witnesses, that, that the plan is coming through us. So I want you to think that the relationships that you have, they're not happenstance. They're providential. It says in Acts 17, he appoints the times and the places in which you live. If he appoints times and places... That means that he's putting you in the context of relationships. Do you, do you tend to just look at relationships, I'll, I'll let somebody else speak to them about God? In other words, we don't want to be guilty of failing to engage in the relationships that we have 
with the hope of the gospel. I'm not saying you're bludgeoning them with the gospel, but you're looking for use of time to engage people in the faith. That's what being a messenger is. That's what being a witness is. You're just declaring, you're testifying to the hope that is within you. Everybody. I was thinking of an example for you, and I thought about Lilius Trotter. I don't know how many of you know her. Probably some of you do. Uh, she, I'm going to actually, the annual biographical sermon will be on her this year. Be the first woman I've ever done. I'm very excited about it. She was a British woman, uh, a promising career as an artist in the 19th century, had a very promising career. But she felt the call of God. Uh, she had been serving in London, but she felt the call of God to share this beautiful message that we're about to hear from verse 22 that Sarah read with the North Africans in Algiers. Now, this is a woman in the 19th century, so no training, uh, not of strong health, rejected by the mission board, uh, no contacts, no mission agency. So she and two of her girlfriends, uh, by purchase to Algiers, and take a boat there and start to do work, of which she did for many, many years and ended up dying there. Uh, this is a woman who is absolutely weak in the world's eyes. Strong in art, uh, but not strong in mission work. Now, I wouldn't advance her methodology, maybe, but I would advance her desire to be a messenger, to be a witness. This is a person who says, she said, if God can use the weak, here I am. And she did it. And she survived. And she was effective. So, so don't write yourself out of God's story. I mean, don't just take yourself out of God's story and say, well, I'm not trained. I'm not as gifted. I'm not a real good speaker. Please, if you hear yourself doing that, if you hear that come out of your mouth, just stop and just say, it's by the power of the Spirit. It's not by the eloquence. It's not by the training. Not that those things are bad and not that they're not used but it's not fundamentally dependent upon that, but upon, but upon God's Spirit. So that's the messenger that we see here. And that just takes us up to our message. So after Peter convinces these people in Jerusalem that they're not a bunch of drunks, he goes and he explains the message. What is the gospel? What is he, Peter, his first sermon, what does he do? Well, he singularly focuses on Christ that God has sent Christ in the power of the Spirit. We have a Trinitarian message. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're all here. And so you see it. Look with me at 22. We're just going to step through his sermon briefly. In 22, you see that he first speaks about Jesus having a human life. He says, this Jesus, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What Peter's saying, he's not looking to prove the existence of miracles. They already knew it, right? Nicodemus comes up to Jesus in John 3 and says, you know what? We know you've got to be from God. Nobody can do the stuff that you do without being from God. Even Jesus' enemies in chapter 11, they said, they said, what should we do with this man? He does these signs, so God attested, he accredited Jesus with miracles to confirm he is the unique son of God. He is my unique son. And so Peter preaches that Jesus has come in the flesh from God. He's not an angel, he's not a spirit, he is a human being 
fully man, fully God, and he's come to dwell among us. Please don't write off, don't write off the incarnation. I mean, what grace of God. All the other Greek divines, the deities would never think to descend among humans. But God, his son, left glory to enter our world to be with us. So that's the first thing he says, that this Jesus, you know him, he was here, human. But then look, this Jesus didn't just live, but he died. Look in 23, and I want you to pay attention to this, what some say is a contradiction. I think, as I'll explain, a paradox. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see what he's saying here? Look at what he says. This Jesus crucified according to God's definite plan. God planned for the Son to be crucified. It was God's idea. It was God's plan. It wasn't happenstance. It was God's plan for the Son to die. Is this a new truth to you? Because Peter wants to make sure you know that it was God's plan to see the Son die. But then he says, but you crucified him. You killed him. I mean, is that unbelievable? I mean, Peter, before a hostile audience like that, turns right on him. He's not bashful. You killed him. Now, which is it? Is it God or is it you? Well, yes. I mean, it's both. Uh, this isn't a contradiction is when a statement or idea is opposed to one another. A paradox is different. A paradox is when there is a statement or an idea that seems opposed to one another, that seems opposed. G.K. Chesterton, another British essayist, he said that a paradox is different than a contradiction. A paradox is a truth standing on its head, screaming for attention. It wants to be known. It wants to grab your attention. That's the point of why Peter wrote it this way. What's the case? Well, God did plan for the Son to die, to bear our sins, to reconcile us to God. And these people did willingly participate. They wanted to do it. They participated in it. They were all in. They were all in. So they're both operational. So why is this so important for Peter to say? Because he wants you to know that Jesus Christ didn't die by accident, wasn't by religious intrigue or um, political intrigue or religious jealousy. I mean, Peter's trying to explain, this Messiah, you can believe in him. Now, a lot of people would think, no, 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 the cross invalidates Jesus as a Messiah. Why? Because those Jews would have known in Deuteronomy that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. The Messiah could not be cursed. He said, no, very much so. He bore your curse. He bore your curse. You'd think they would have gotten this from Isaiah 53. Let me just read you a few verses out of it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We esteemed him not. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shear is a silence, so he opened not his mouth. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God's will was to crush him so that we might be redeemed. He bore the curse that our sins should have brought upon us. 
the curse all the way back to Genesis 3. When God brought the curse, Jesus bore that for us. So Peter says he lived, he died. But this one that you rejected, he's been raised. That's what he says. In, in fact, in, in 24, all the way through 32, he is proclaiming that this Jesus has been raised. Now you see, he doesn't offer any proof. They already knew it. There was no proof offered that Christ had been raised to this group. This, remember now, we're just two months away from the resurrection. Max two months, maybe 50 days from the resurrection. So it would have been known. He's saying he was raised. And notice what he does. He proves the truth from Scripture, from Psalm 16. The Psalm 16 is where he says, the Holy One will not see decay. Now, this psalm was written by David. But Peter's point is that though it was written by David, it was not for David. Why? Because Peter says, we've got David's tomb. Go open the door. Grab a, grab a handful of David, of dust. He's right there. His body has decayed. It's seen decay. But this one does not see decay. In other words, he says to us in that section, David was a prophet. And he spoke about what was coming. Do you remember the promise God gave to David in 2 Samuel? He said, you're going to have a descendant. He is going to be a distinguished descendant who will have an eternal throne. His kingdom will never, ever end. So David knew that God was bringing forth the Messiah from himself. And he knew that the Messiah would not see decay. And Peter's point is that he's been raised to prove to us that the sacrifice, his death, was accepted by God, and we are now forgiven. See, he doesn't argue for the resurrection. He argues from it. He argues from it. Because he's been raised, that means that we have been forgiven. God has accepted the son's sacrifice for us. Do you know what that means? That means you don't have to try harder tomorrow. That doesn't mean that you don't have to add to his works by being good or by bludgeoning yourself if you haven't studied your Bible. I want you to study your Bible, but that's not upon what, you're found that, upon what your salvation rests. So he's saying that, no, Jesus has been raised. And he didn't do it in a corner, by the way. He didn't do it in some backwater town in the Middle East. He did it in Jerusalem, witnessed by 500 people. It was known, and Peter's referencing that. But then he goes on, notice. He, he says he's lived, he's died, he's been raised, and now he's been exalted. Look in 33 to 35, because he talks about the son now being raised. Again, 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 he turns to scripture, Psalm 110, another Davidic psalm, another psalm of David. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, David is writing the psalm. So David is saying, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that's David's Lord. Well, this David's Lord is also David's son, and he's now been at the right hand. He has all authority so he can advance the church in the mission to the world. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in that Jesus is not just a savior to us, but he's now sovereign, and he's sovereign over all things. In fact, in Psalm 2, it kind of speaks to it very well. He says, now therefore, kings, be wise, O rulers, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. That's kind of the, the co-gatekeeper of the Psalms, to find refuge in the Son of God, who is full of wrath and grace. Now you see in 36, he kind of sums up the whole Psalm, doesn't he? 
he says, he says to so this, be assured, Israel, know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what Peter is saying is this Jesus wasn't just human. He was, uh, but, but he was also our savior. He's died for our sins and he's now sovereign over all things. This is the message that he preached. And by the way, this was all from God. And it was done through the power of the Spirit. Again, you see that Trinitarian picture. This is the message that we still proclaim. So again, stepping back from the text for a minute, looking at your life, this is what we share. You know, it's funny, when you read biographies, you tend to read all about a person's life and what, you know, where they were raised and, and you know, their kind of their early years and then their great accomplishments. But the gospel writers and Peter and the writers of the New Testament, they don't focus a lot on the early years. They don't focus a lot on his accomplishments. They focus on his death and his resurrection. Those are kind of the, the, those are the twin towers. He died for me and he's been raised for me. That gets the most ink in the New Testament. He died for me and he was raised for me. That continues to be the message. I, I mean, a lot of arguments about being relevant and trying, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute. We do have to texture our mes message to who we speak. But the content of the message has to be he's died for us. He, he was cut off that we were grafted in. He bore the curse. He bore our sin. He died. He suffered and died for us. And yet he was raised and now is seated. It's amazing to think that as I stand before you and talk to you about him, he sits at the right hand of God, above all rule, authority, power, dominion. He is a very good God, but he's not safe. That's the language C.S. Lewis used in his book Chronicles, or um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That he's, he's good in this little dialogue and trying to explain who Aslan, Aslan is the Christ figure in the book, and in trying to explain Aslan to a, a new character in the story, uh, the character thought he was a man, and no, he's, he's a lion. Well, I wouldn't feel safe before a lion. And, um, and so he goes on in the dialogue between the two, and he says these words, um, is he really safe? And, and the character says, who said anything about safe? He said, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's announcing what we're doing. He is the king. He is not safe. I mean, we have to live in this tension that he's good. He is so good. He is, he is better than anyone. And yet he's not safe. Do you, do you think about that? When you think about Revelation 6, it, it kind of pictures this return of Jesus. And he says these words. He says, Then the kings of the earth, so at the, return of at the return of Jesus, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? No one can. So th this, is, this is the message we have. When we speak to the hope that's within us, he is so good. He's laid down his life for us. But we don't want to 
trifle with who he is. We don't want to, he, he is, has all authority and glory and power. And, and I even want those of you who are struggling, even in the context of life and the struggles you have, don't forget where he sits. Don't forget who he is. It's a great comfort to us. It's a great comfort to us who know him and whom he knows. Okay, so, so our message is singularly about Christ. It isn't about rules and regulations. And there may be things that we talk about and how to live the Christian life. There may be principles we may need to learn, but it's about Christ. He has to be central. But our message also implicates all people. The message that we preach implicates all people. Do you know this, that Peter says, you crucified him twice. You killed him, is what he said. Now, technically, they probably didn't. They may not have even been in Jerusalem at the day of crucifixion. They may have been travelers coming in for the Feast of Pentecost. But he says, you killed them. In other words, he's saying that you are guilty. All of us are. All of us stand in guilt before God. Why? Because we've rejected the Son of God. At one point in our lives, we're living our lives apart from Christ, as if he's a a two-bit impersonator of God. All of us are guilty. You know, the Christian understands that Jesus didn't die by accident, and he didn't die as, as an example of love, but bearing our sins. You know, if you saw, saw the movie The Passion of Christ with Mel Gibson, and I don't mean to make any conjecture about where he is with anything, but the movie, in the movie, The Passion of Christ, uh, he makes no cameo appearances at all. And there's only one scene that he's in. And the scene that he's in is at the crucifixion. He has his hand on the, on the, on the nail and the other hand on the hammer, and he's driving it. Now, now, what I take from that is he sees himself as putting Christ on the tree. His sins put Christ on the tree. That's what Christians understand. That's, what, that's why they said, what shall we do? You know, when they responded to Peter after his preaching, what shall we do? We sense the guilt. We sense the culpability. The Christian understands that the gospel message isn't just for Westerners. It's for all people. All people are guilty. All people have killed him. But then also our message has to be textured. Now, let me be clear. It has to be textured to those that we talk to. Uh, we don't change the message, but we texture the messages to who we talk to. So, for example, in Peter's sermon here, how many times did he reference? He referenced the Old Testament three different times. I mean, he knew that his audience had a framework of understanding the coming of the Messiah. If you go to Acts 17, when Paul preaches to the Greeks in Athens, He doesn't even use scripture, right? Why? Because he didn't have it. He spoke about creation and the resurrection. So so there is an awareness of our audience. When I talk to you, because the vast majority of you are Christian, I assume you have a strong level of scripture. You're you're wanting to engage. You're wanting to understand. You, You have similar definitions for terms that we all agree on. What's sin? What's truth? What's judgment? When I speak to people out there, I don't speak like this at all. I ask questions. I try to do what I call pre-evangelism. What do they believe right now? Uh, I understand that the moral, the definitions of certain moral categories, sin and truth and God, uh, people have all kinds of different understandings. I quoted back a few years ago that sin, for example, when you survey a a, a typical American, only 17% feel that it's actually against God. Now, what is the gospel? When you bring up the gospel and sin and forgiveness, they don't even feel like they've sinned against God. As long as it's not consensual, I'm okay. As long as they're okay, I'm okay kind of thing. 
So, so pre-evangelism takes time. You've got to be patient. You've got to wait. You've got to meet them where they are. You know, if they're on the first step, you've got to come down. You've got to come down the steps to, to meet them where they are, to help form definitions of words and to help slowly bring them up to create categories so that the gospel makes more sense. That's what we're called to do as witnesses. And then the last thing I would say regarding this message, so I've talked about him being a messenger, and, and you, if you're a Christian here, you're a messenger, you recognize the time, you recognize the indispensability of your role, but then the message itself, our message is singularly on Christ, our message is implicating all people, our message is textured to those that we're listening to, and then ultimately our message is going to generate a lot of responses. I mean, if you just follow Peter out in the first 10 chapters of Acts, Chapter 2, he preaches, 3,000 come. Huge, right? I mean, that had to get you excited. He preaches in chapter 4, boom, he's in jail. He preaches in chapter 5, he's in the middle of a conflict with the religious leadership. As Stephen preaches in chapter 6 and 7, he dies, people throwing rocks at him because of the message. Chapter 10, Peter preaches again now to Gentiles, the Spirit falls on them, kind of what we call the Gentile Pentecost. And boom, there's all kinds of excitement. This message will generate all kinds of responses. You have to prepare yourself for that to be a witness, to be a messenger. Some are going to listen to you, and you're going to fumble through it, and they're going to bing, they're going to understand. Others, you're going to get through it, and you're going to almost be impressed with how well you sound, and it's just like tennis balls off a tank. I mean, they don't even hear you. They don't even care about it. They're not even worried about it. They don't even think about their own death. People can be absolutely entrenched in their hardness. Well, you see the response here, though, in 37 to 41, and it's a great response. I, I want to go through this briefly, and I want to hold it up to you as a mirror. I, I want you to see your own response to the gospel. So if you're a Christian here, how does your response to the gospel mirror this or not? And then if you're a person here and you're looking at the Christian faith, this gives you instruction about how we become Christians. A lot of people, what do I do? How do I get into the club kind of thing? It explains how. So, so look with me. It, it says there right in the beginning of 37. Now when they heard this, that is the message he just preached, they were cut to the heart. So the first thing you see is that, is that a response to the gospel that's right and pleasing to God is cut to the heart, they're convicted. Uh, they're, they're conscious stricken. They feel guilty. Why? Because they missed it. They missed it. They didn't understand Christ. When Christ came and said he was the Savior of the world. He was the Son of God. They missed it. What they thought is me might have been a prophet. Well, maybe he had some political aspirations. But they missed who he was. They can't believe that he would be the Son of God. How could someone who died and who suffered be the Son of God? We know you two, uh, great uh, Irish, Irish band, uh, Bono was interviewed once um, by this reporter. And, and here's what the reporter said. You know, Christ has his rank among the world's greatest thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? She asked him. He says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look at the secular response to Christ's story. It always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously an interesting guy, had a lot of things to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. 
I am God incarnate. That's Christ and Lord. And people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. <clears throat> You're a bit eccentric. We had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify him. And he goes, no, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here, he says. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, is far-fetched. So the idea that he isn't who he said he was is absolutely craziness. But they missed it, and now they get it, and they're guilty. But not are they guilty over missing it, they're responsible for his death. They are responsible. They're not resp I, I don't want you to see that sin is just breaking of the rules. They see their responsibility by rejecting the one that God sent. I mean, how many years did you live rejecting Christ or ignoring Christ or ambivalent to Christ? And then your eyes are opened and you're convicted. He is the Son of God. I have to reconcile with him. This is what conviction is. <clears throat> if you don't have this deep conviction, then it's not a true conversion. You know, Charles Spurgeon says, <clears throat> he says, our converts are worth nothing. If they're converted by men, they can be unconverted by men. He goes on, and he says this, it's an idle attempt to heal those who are not wounded, to attempt to clothe those who have never been stripped, and to make those rich who have never realized their poverty. If you're not convicted, and this is important for parents to understand with younger children who are beginning to speak about things of the faith, this is a critical linchpin to understand. There has to be conviction. I have misunderstood him, and I am responsible for his death. But not only that, look what happens next. Secondly, it's the surrender. That's the next response, surrender. They say, what shall we do? There isn't a justification here. There isn't a, if you knew what my life was like, if you knew my mother, if you knew the context in which I was raised, you don't see any bargaining with, well, I really had it bad. That's the way I am. That's the reason why I am the way I am. No, it's just a surrender. It's a, it's a laying down. It's a giving up. You know, C.S. Lewis again speaks about the, uh, the fallen man is not a creature that can be improved. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms and say, God, what can I do? That's the nature of conversion. There's no sneaky way up the mountain. It's simply, what can I do? And then you see what happens next. They repent. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repentance is a theological term. It is not simply feeling sorry for yourself or feeling remorse or, gee, I wish I hadn't done it, but I really love the person and now they're suffering. It's not that. It may include that. It's not that. It's much, much more. It's a theological term. It means... It means to, to as, as uh, Thomas Watson, and you can Google this, by the way, Thomas Watson, his book, Repentance, you can pull it right off the web. It's a great book, very readable. He says it's sight of sin. In other words, I recognize my sin. I'm sorrow for my sin. I confess my sin. I hate my sin. I turn from my sin. It's a turning. You kind of see it when Paul writes to the 
church at Thessalonica, he says these words, he says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but in power and in the Holy Spirit in full conviction. So there is the conviction, right? It came to you in power and conviction, that's the Spirit, and how you turned to God from idols. Repentance is a turning, and it's not just a turning from sin. I can't keep drinking like that, it's going to ruin me. I can't keep looking at porn, it's just going to destroy my marriage. It's a turning from that to God. I want to live for God. He is now my Lord and Christ, and I'm going to live for Him. That's the nature of repentance. And then to be baptized, of course, is in water following this conviction. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change. Baptism doesn't earn you forgiveness, it visualizes it. So when you go down into the water, you're going down into death, to the old life. And then you're coming up cleansed by the water. I'm now living for him. And then this baptism is followed by membership in the church. Notice what it says at the very end. And 3,000 were added to their number. What number? The number of those who are united around the gospel. This is why the church is so central, or should be central to the Christian. The church continues the healing process that was begun. You know, Augustine was a great church father in the fourth century, and he likens conversion to this. He says, conversion is like removing a spear from a man. You know, you can just imagine a spear entering my side. And conversion is removing the spear. The spear is taken out. That's the forgiveness that we have at the cross. But the wound still has to heal. I mean, the wound still has to heal from inside out. That's what the church does. And sadly, the church is often crushing people. But we're to be a place where we're sanctifying one another. We're being used in one another's lives to prepare each other for God. That's why John Calvin said that, that there is no salvation beyond the pale of the church. He wasn't saying, like the Roman Catholic Church, that the church holds salvation. Christ saves. But the church does that great work. So that's his first sermon. You, you see he's a messenger. He's a messenger that recognizes that he lives in a certain time and he has an indispensable role to play. That's you and I. And you see, too, that the message was preached and, and you see the effect that it had. Have you been convicted of sin? I mean, have you felt that conviction? I was wrong. And, and my sins did pin him to that tree. And, and have you considered have you surrendered? What do you yet need to surrender? Have you repented? Have you turned from sin to God, or have you just turned from sin to a good morality? And have you been baptized? I mean, that's an act of obedience. It doesn't save, but it sure does publicly declare to people that are going to walk with me through life, this is who I want to be. I want you to hold me accountable to the vow that I'm making to Christ. And then joining the church, which we've had these new friends join us. So it's a beautiful passage about being a messenger, carrying a message. That's our role. Would you pray with me? So let's take just a moment and, and consider these things. And I, I want you to consider who's one person, what one relationship can I begin to prayerfully consider how I can move in this direction? Perhaps ask forgiveness for your silence. Ask for boldness in your speech. Then I'll pray for us in just a minute.